you know, they, the amount of intensity that it takes to produce the best results is remarkably little. People are shocked when I tell them, you know, even for athletes that I've coached to the Olympics, to the podium at the Olympics in the sport of cross-country skiing, which is a super high intensity sport, they maybe, maybe in their total training volume for the year do 10% of that training in what we might call zone three and four, you know, hard, hard training, high intensity training, training that leaves them, you know, gasping with their hands on their knees at the end of the interval, 10%. And these are people that are doing races that, you know, at the longest may last, last you know, 30 to 40 minutes. So it's an incredibly high intensity event and they don't need that much intensity. And when you get to, when you start talking about people that are doing multi-hour events, then the amount of intensity that's needed even drops lower, you know, and the, it's just, it's like that haiku, you, you run, you run a lot and some of it fast. So it's, I think of this aerobic base as, you know, instead of a sandcastle, you can think of it as like a cake. And then the intensity is the frosting on the top. That's all it is. It's just a little bit of frosting on the top that makes it just a little bit sweeter or allows you to run just a little bit faster. Um, but it ain't the cake. I mean, with the frosting without the cake is not really going to be anything. Welcome back to the Mops and Mo's podcast with Alex and Drew. We've talked a lot about zone to cardio and this is the episode where we're going to really dig into that topic specifically drew what do we got so our guest today scott johnston is his name uh he is an og rock climber alpinist skier he got his start in the 60s and 70s in boulder colorado uh, and from there got into olympic level skiing swimming um, but what he is most known for, for folks in the sort of tactical training community, folks that are familiar with the alpinism world, are two of his books, Training for the New Alpinism and Training for the Uphill Athlete. Uh, he, alongside one of the probably world's greatest climbers in his day, Steve House, put pen to paper and really were the first ones to go after this idea of zone two training, which... I think in the tactical space is incredibly important because for so long, as everybody knows, it's been a lot of push-ups, pull-ups, run as fast as you can, now transitioning to sort of lift as hard as you can. And what we wanted to bring Scott on to talk about was legitimately, and no pun intended, slowing things down, building up volume. How do you construct an appropriate aerobic base? What does that plan look like? So we do get into the weeds a little bit intentionally because we want to kind of tease out some practical training tips. Um, but you'll hear this, you'll hear him mention this at the end. We'll mention it here at the beginning. If this does strike a chord and if you are interested in learning more about this type of thing, which I think we both highly encourage, uh, we would direct you towards Uphill Athlete, the site, a ton of blog entries on how to construct training, what it means to build an aerobic base, the physiology behind it. Um, so it's a, it's a good one. A lot of coaches do not always appreciate the aerobic conditioning side of things. So we're trying to give light to that a little bit because you might've noticed in previous content, Drew and I are both of the opinion that aerobic cardiovascular conditioning is a little bit underrated in the tactical strength and conditioning space as it stands right now. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
how did you i don't think i've ever asked you this but how did you come about sort of your arrival into um the importance of zone two and the importance of aerobic base building because i know your background was in in competition but were you playing around with that back then or did you just sort of arrive at that coaching the likes of steve and and the athletes no it it but it was accidental i have to say i mean i didn't come at it you know from let's say you know, a scientific standpoint or an educational standpoint where somebody explained all this to me, but having been, you know, an endurance athlete since childhood and having had in a couple of cases, really outstanding coaches, I'd been exposed to this and I'd actually used it in my own training without knowing what I was doing. I just did what the coach said to do. And it was a dumb kid. and didn't think about why I was doing it. And it was only later when um, you know, when I was a new adult and I was thrust into a position where um, I was told I was asked to be and I accepted an offer to become a coach to a, a junior cross country ski program in the place I live. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know anything about this. I mean, I knew I had been a skier myself you know, on the World Cup and had competed and I, I knew what to do, sort of. But it was only then when I realized I'm pretty incompetent. I mean, I don't know why I would tell these kids to do what I'm telling them to do. And I just began to kind of devour all this information that I could find, you know, some on the internet, some in books, that sort of thing. And I began to seek out you know, like some of the best coaches that I, I could, had heard about, and especially in the sport of running, because there's so much published information there. And as I read, and I began to understand the physiology, I went, oh, that's why my coach in high school was having us do blah, blah, blah. You know, all this base training, all these, you know, in a pool, all these meters in a pool that we were doing as swimmers. Um, you know, we were swimming 20,000 meters a day for, you know, five or six days a week. That's a lot of time in a pool, five hours a day, basically. And I didn't, you know, when you're, when you're swimming that much or that far, you can't swim very fast. So you're by, by virtue of the volume of training, the bulk of it ends up being in that lower intensity aerobic zone. And I went on to, you know, be, to excel in swimming. Um, it was later when I got bored with swimming and got introduced to skiing that I switched to cross country skiing, but it, it came, it was only later, honestly, that, you know, the that it, I went, oh, there's a reason we were doing 20,000 meters a day, or there's a reason that the best marathoners in the world run a hundred plus miles a week. You know, there, and then it was started like, oh, that makes sense. And then I began to read, you know, old time coaches, coaches that were, you know, even well before my day, which is now getting kind of a long time ago, saying the same stuff. And I thought, there's a history of this. You know, people, these coaches, even though these coaches, they might have not known, you know, a, a mitochondria from, you know, their next door neighbor, but they they knew that if you did all this high volume of this low intensity training, excuse me, training, it would improve the athlete's performance. And so there's a long history now of this stuff. And it's only, but I think now with the internet and, um, you know, there, and I think the, the rise in the popularity of, well, maybe we should go there later, but that's, that's kind of my origin story a little bit of how I came to, to understand this. Well, it's funny you mentioned the internet piece of it. And I think we've seen this across 
and I think you and I have probably talked about this too, across human performance and, and training in general, it becomes the prevalence of information overcomplicates things so much so that when you do get to the point where you are prescribing aerobic base work, at least from what I've experienced with athletes, the simplicity of it can kind of throw people off sometimes because they expect things to be way more complex than just, like you said, meters in the pool or miles on the, on the road. Um, and it's just interesting to think back to all those coaches and all those years of just doing basic aerobic base work. Well, you remember, you know, I'm sure you've watched some old Hollywood movie or Sylvester Stallone and, and where they did the run, boxers did road work. They ran 10 miles a day. And so even then, you know, in a combat sport with three minute bouts, they understood the importance of this, you know, even without probably understanding why they knew that these boxers needed to do these, this road work. Um, same thing you could say, you know, with, you know, with many sports that there's, there's been this sort of, I mean, I always, I'm a big believer that the coaches lead the way when it comes to um, discovering the best training methodologies. And it's only later that the scientists come in and explain, oh, that happens because of this you know, uh, cascade of events that you know, result in these genes being expressed and blah, blah, blah happens. And that's, it's wonderful knowledge to have. And I think it has really helped sports science. But the coaches are going, yeah, we've been doing that for 30, 40 years. So what, what's the big deal? Um, and, I, and I think that you're right, Drew, about the simplicity of it. I once was listening to a talk by a quite a famous um, exercise scientist and, and coach, um, M Michael Joyner, and I, he's also an MD. And at, at the end of the talk, when somebody asked him, so wow, you have all this, he's a running coach, you have all this amazing information. Like, why don't you write a book about training for running? And he said, because it, it can be summarized as a haiku run a lot, some of it fast. I mean, that's, and that's not very complicated. You know, then I think that you're, so that gets to your point, Drew, about, you know, this isn't, this isn't that hard to do. And you're right, people are looking for something more complex. And, and certainly you guys know this well from your world. I mean, it is complicated to train for higher intensity or strength and conditioning. You know, the, there are a lot of factors that need to be balanced. Whereas what we're telling these people is, yeah, you need to go out the door and, and run for an hour and be able to either breathe through your nose or have a conversation while you're doing it. And that's really about it. And so that's the, the simplicity. One of the twists I find too, Drew talked about the prevalence of information available on the internet. And I think a, a dark side of that, and you alluded to it, is that people are looking for certain things and, and some people are just going to give them what they're looking for regardless of whether it's what they need or what's useful or what's correct. And so there's, there's a huge portion of the internet that's dedicated to providing whatever information is going to get the most clicks rather than what's going to get the best results. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it used to be that this information, we had to dig it out of books or, you know, medical or not medical research journals and things like that. And so it ended up only being pretty credible sources that were publishing this information. And so if you read it, you would have, you know, have a pretty good reason to believe you know, the person's credentials or the, what the, the information. And yes, you're right. I think there's so much crappy information out there now 
that it, it's a little harder to filter through. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, Alex, that, it, that there's, and I won't name names here, but I think there are some fads in fitness that have become popular in the last you know, 15, 20 years that are incredibly good business plans, but terrible plans for, you know, especially if you're an athlete. I mean, if you're just wanting to be active, then some of those kind of fitness fads, they're, they're certainly a lot better than sitting on a couch. But if you actually have performance goals that as an athlete, and in our case, in your case, tactical athletes that need to meet certain performance goals, especially if it's for some sort of selection. And you know, Drew knows that that's kind of the area that has I've been drawn into. I deal quite often with, with um, military athletes that are aiming for uh, like a tier one selection. And so they've got a very specific athletic goal, which is quite different than somebody who just wants to be active and you know, hopefully, you know, again, move, just moving is what people, most people need. But we're dealing, we're talking about a different population when we talk about athletes that have goals. And I think that's, those two things can become confused. Mm -hmm. Can you, because what I want to try to put across by having, like having this conversation with you is the basic building blocks of endurance training. I think Alex and I both have seen this across with tactical, well, really strength and conditioning in general, but specifically the tactical community. There's a, there's a really deep understanding of the resistance training side of things, but a real shallow understanding of the endurance side of things. So I want to kind of walk through sort of the heart rate zone methodology especially the zone two piece, what that really means, how you might go about finding some of that, and then getting into some of the practical nuggets of like, if somebody is just is new to running, or if somebody is looking to kind of restructure their, their endurance stuff, because maybe they hit a wall, or maybe they're, they're beat up, like what that might look like. Because um, that's when I talk about endurance training, as, as simple as we try to make it, some folks, I think, just kind of miss the mark, because it's almost too it's, it's so simple that it, it becomes confusing, if that makes sense. Um, can you explain the zoning strategy that specifically, I suppose, the one that we use at Uphill Athlete? Sure. It's, it's based on the concept that training for endurance is um, what you're trying to do is affect your metabolism. So there's your metabolism. And I'm going to, I would like to briefly dive into what metabolism is, because until people understand that, I think it's hard to, to grasp those, that, that, that overall overarching concept. Um, but you're trying to change your metabolism, your body's metabolism. And whereas training for strength is primarily like a neurologic training effect, you're trying to induce, you're, to, to force nerves to either fire more powerful um, uh, motor units or to recruit more of them, you know, the, the central nervous system to recruit more of those motor units. Um, so it's primarily a nervous system training thing. And, and so you have these two, you know, endurance trains metabolism, strength trains the nervous system primarily. Then there's obviously crossover. But, um, and I think some people have tried to, again, bring strength training ideas into the, the endurance training world, but you're, they're, they're totally different. Um, you're, you're trying to affect different changes. So they, you need to appreciate that. So let me give my, see if I can briefly describe metabolism. So 
the energy to contract a muscle is created through a process that's known as metabolism. And what happens in that metabolism process is a, uh, a little molecule called adenosine triphosphate that people know as ATP is created. And in the, that ATP is essentially, the, we can think of it as like the gasoline that fuels that motor, that uh, muscle contraction. Now, how that ATP is generated is the, is the interesting part of metabolism. We have um, two, two pathways metabolically to produce this ATP. One of them essentially breaks down fats and uses oxygen to, turn, to create ATP, whereas the other one breaks down sugars uh, in the form of glycogen, which is um, two glucose mo molecules stuck together, but that's how we store sugar is in glycogen. It breaks down glycogen to produce ATP, but does not use oxygen. So the, the pathway that, that um, you can have aerobic glycolysis or you can break down glycogen aerobically because the, the, um, the, the aerobic pathway can use either fat or um, sugars or carbohydrates. Whereas the, the, the uh, what we call the anaerobic pathway that does not use any oxygen only breaks down uh, carbohydrates or sugars. And what we want to induce through, when I said we wanted to change our metabolism, what we're trying to do is increase the production rate of um, ATP in the muscle cells so that we can have more muscle contractions, more powerful muscle contractions for a longer time. And that's essentially what in, endurance is. And through proper endurance training methods, we can cause those changes in the muscle cells themselves that will allow you to run farther faster. So that's kind of the, you know, the quick two minute discussion of what, how this, this works at the muscle cell level. Now, we, if we train, if we um, run too fast, if we run so fast that we need more um, ATP then that aerobic pathway can supply because the aerobic pathway is somewhat limited speed-wise in the, its ability to, to produce ATP, then the body will rely very heavily on that anaerobic pathway. So when you sprint as hard as you can for 200 meters, the energy that's coming from that is predominantly produced by the anaerobic pathway because it can turn over, it can produce ATP very quickly. Unfortunately, when it does so, there's a number of metabolites that come out of that metabolic process that will cause you to slow down. Anybody who's ever tried to sprint for you know, 200 meters knows exactly what I'm talking about. That you know, by, the, by, the, by 230 meters, your legs are about to fall off. You know, you're gonna be forced to slow down because you can't, you can't maintain this pace. And that's, it's, through, it's not because you're weak, it's not because you lack endurance, it's because you're using this pathway that produces these, these um, we won't call them waste products because they're not waste products, but they are a byproduct that actually will force you to come to a stop. And you can test this out on yourself. Go run up a hill as hard as you can for as long as you can, and you will eventually come to a stop because that pathway gets shut down. Now, endurance that you obviously need for, you know, any, actually anything over about two minutes is predominantly fueled by the aerobic pathway. <clears throat> so even running, you know, a, a mile 
is predominantly fueled by the aerobic pathway. And so in order to enhance the aerobic pathways ability to produce energy, we need to train in and at an intensity that is stimulates predominantly that aerobic metabolic path. If we train too hard, then we're gonna be overly reliant on that other anaerobic pathway, which is a useful pathway and we don't wanna completely neglect it, but it's not the essential one that we need. And especially for people that are involved in multi-day or even, and especially multi, uh, excuse me, multi-hour and especially multi-day, let's say going through one of these selections, events when you need when you need to be able to keep moving for hour after hour that's the aerobic pathway that's providing that energy and so it turns out that the best way to improve this the this aerobic pathways ability to produce atp is to train at an intensity that's somewhat below that pathways maximum uh, uh, production level and we call that the, the aerobic threshold. Um, it could also be called the maximum aerobic function, but it, and it's something that can, it can be fairly easily determined in a number of different tests, but there's also some really simple ways you ask about, Drew, to determine you know, what is that, what's that intensity look like and what's it feel like? And it probably feels a lot easier than most people are, are even willing to, to um, admit and to understand but with, if you don't have access to any sort of testing facility where they can, you can determine it or you, and you don't use some of the methods that we prescribe um, with an uphill athlete, that's fine. You don't need them. If you can run or, and let's, we're using running because I think it's a kind of the universal aerobic based training and people in your world need to be able to run. Um, but if you can run and carry on, you know, uh, speak in full sentences and kind of right at the limit of being able to carry a, on a conversation with your running partner, then you are in that aerobic realm metabolically, and you are enhancing that metabolic pathways ability to produce ATP. Another test would be, can you breathe through your nose and do this? You know, kind of the very upper limit of nose breathing will also be probably the, the top of that aerobic zone. And now the, the, the hard part to sell this to most people is if people have not been training this way, they don't have a history, a long history of endurance training, or they haven't been training like this in, in months, they are going to be so shocked at how little ATP that, that aerobic system can produce that they may even have to walk to stay in this intensity zone. and that's hard on the ego. And it's also hard for people who are used to hard, you know, high intensity and harder training. They will go, wait a minute, this can't be doing anything. I don't feel like this is, I don't feel like I'm even working. So I'm going to go back to just, you know, running as hard as I can. If I've got, if I've got 30 minutes to run. I'm going to go out the door and run as hard as I can for 30 minutes. If I've got an hour, I'll run as hard as I can for an hour. But unfortunately what that does is it actually downregulates that aerobic pathway and upregulates this anaerobic pathway that it is not really as useful. So something I often will, an example I will give people to help them kind of wrap their heads around how incredible, how, how much energy can be produced by the aerobic system is to explain that the marathon 
is in the, the road marathon is an event that is competed at one, the top of one's aer this aerobic zone that we're talking about. And, and it doesn't matter if you are a four hour marathoner or if you are a two hour marathoner like Iliad Kipchoge, both those people are in the same metabolic state. One of them is running, you know, nine and a half minute miles and the other one's running four and a half minute miles. And, but they're both using, they're both maximally using their own personal aerobic capacity to do this. Now it's hard for most of us. Most of us could not run 200 meters at the pace that Iliad Kipchoge can run 26 miles. But I think it's illustrative to understand that he got there, obviously, I'm sure he has some special genetic gifts, but he got there just through years and years of training this aerobic capacity so that it could produce more of this special molecule, ATP, that allows him to run faster. And over the years with the people I've worked with, I will frequently get e emails from people who, oh my God, I didn't believe this would work. And when I started, I had to run 13 and a half minute miles. And now at the same effort, the same breathing, same heart rate, now I'm running seven and a half minute miles. I mean, just by building this aerobic base and they haven't even done any intensity. And you can, you, so remember what I said that, that, that um, Michael Joyner had said, he said, you run a lot and some of it fast. That some of it fast is important but it's a supplement to, and not a replacement for this aerobic base training that we've been that we're talking about. And I think that's what people think sometimes is that high intensity training is somehow a shortcut to fitness, aerobic fitness. And that's one of those things, Alex, you were talking about that the, the sort of the snake oil salesmen on the internet have kind of been able to convince people is, oh yeah, you can run your best marathon on you know, three 20 minute hit workouts a week. Well, if that could be, if that could happen, then people like Iliad Kipchoge would be doing it and they're doing the exact opposite. Well, I think it's important, like, cause I've noticed this specifically training guys that like you mentioned, have this big, this big deficit, in my opinion, the biggest barrier to entry, if you want to call it that for a rope, like proper aerobic training is the fact that if you are very new to this and I will include myself because I was in this position you will be walking for part of that. A lot of it will be whenever you encounter hills, sometimes you'll be walking uphill. And I think, cause I've, I've, I've seen this happen where you will prescribe, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of, of a run at a particular heart rate. And they'll come back and say, I, I went way higher than I was supposed to, but I kept running the whole time. And they'll think that it was a win. And you have to reiterate to them that no, no, the, the goal is to stay below that, that threshold because we're looking at changing physiology. We're not looking at changing performance just yet. And if they can get around that idea of there might be walking involved, you might be moving much slower than you think. And there's some patience behind it. Then, like you said, like you reap the rewards after a couple of weeks and, and you're off to the races. No pun intended. That was a pretty bad pun. Well, I think a piece of this too, and I think this is how we like connect it to the tactical space a little bit is that when you look at traditional endurance sports, you're probably looking at like a prototypical type of person without a lot of variability you're looking at like really skinny smaller people who like excel in those domains and now we're trying to apply that kind of training methodology to a person who's much bigger and therefore to move at the same pace their heart and lungs are going to have to do a lot more work and that that changes 
what the experience feels like and what the starting point is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's much harder to, I mean, when you're carrying around all that extra weight, I mean, extra, it's extra for the runner, but not extra for the tactical athlete. Then yes, you're that those muscles, those bi- those big biceps, those big deltoids, they need oxygen when you're running. And if they're, they need a lot of oxygen. I mean, they don't, they're not working, but you have to, they have to be fed oxygen too, or they will die. And so part of that, your limited blood supply, instead of being able to go to your legs to help propel you is having to go to those big you know, deltoids or trapezius muscles that aren't helping you run at all. So yeah, big, heavily muscled people struggle more, but you know, I've again worked with some of these fellows who are, you know, pretty conventional, um, you know, tactical, you know, military athletes who are going through these, you know, selections that last weeks that involve, you know, being on their feet for, you know, all day long, essentially moving continuously. And they do, they get there. They may not be running four and a half minute miles at their aerobic threshold, but, you know, they're running seven minute miles at their aerobic threshold. And they started at, you know, they started in this, you know, 12 minute mile pace. So yes, you're right. It's, it's, and it, a lot of big guys don't like to run because the impact loading is significant. Um, and one of the things I think we should touch on since we're, we're really talking almost exclusively about using running for this type of training. Um, and I think it's, it's a good, it's a good tool. Running's a great tool for improving your aerobic capacity because for most of the events that we're talking about training guys for, they are footborne activities. They are, you know, you're either rucking or you're running and you can't improve your running or your rucking on a rowing machine. It, it doesn't, they don't translate because rowing machine is not, not weight bearing. Bicycles are not weight bearing activities. And so they use, you know, you, you're not having to support your whole body weight against gravity. And so they're, they're, they're different. They're better than nothing for sure. If you've got somebody who has an injury, obviously they're going to need to get off of the weight bearing modality and get into something that's like cycling. But Back to the running part, one of the challenges I've learned over many years is people who are, do not have this running background, and especially if they're on the big side, you know, heavily muscled, you have to be really careful and very gradual at introducing high volume of running to them. Um, the reason being, and this is something that I think is talked about a lot, I, I don't see it much even in the running space, is that the connective tissues the fascia and the tendons, especially, and especially in the lower legs, they are very poorly vascularized. So they adapt to training loads very slowly. And your muscles, on the other hand, will adapt to the training quite quickly because the muscles are incredibly well vascularized. And the consequence of that is you may begin to feel fitter, but all those connective tissues that are holding your joints together aren't yet very strong. And so people within a few weeks, they start to feel faster and fitter and they wanna run faster. And then they do, and a week later, they've got Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis, very common running injuries. And so what I am prone to do when I'm working with people who don't have a strong running background um, is we'll start with, maybe they're gonna be running 
eight miles, 10 miles a week maximum. Maybe they do three running sessions a week and we see how they can handle. If they can handle eight or 10 miles a week. Um, and then we'll maybe, we, and, I, and I always do that in two week blocks. So if, I, if they were doing 10 miles, they would do 10 miles a week for two weeks. And then we can, because during that two weeks, if something's gonna pop up, it'll probably show its head pop, pop up in the, somewhere in the middle or to the end of that second week. And we could go, oh, okay, this is all you're capable of handling right now. Um, and then I might bump it up by 10 to 20% in the early days. But once we get up around 20 miles per week, then I will only change, only increase, increase mileage by no more than about 10% per week, per 10%, excuse me, for these, to these two week blocks. And what I found with that is even with the military athletes I've worked with, they can, what we could, I've not had any ever get, um, you know, lower leg, the traditional lower leg running injuries that have caused them to have to stop training. And so I think that's another caveat for people that are going to dive into endurance training and want to do it with running is be very gradual. And if you are, you know, if, if you're two miles from home and you're all of a sudden that Achilles flares up, don't keep running, you know, stop, call somebody, hitchhike a ride, something home. Do not try to run through these injuries. That's the fastest way to end your whole running progression is to, you know, to say, oh, I think I can make it back to base or no, I'm tough. I can, I can deal with this. No, you're not. You're not that tough. <laughs> I promise you. Um, it will cripple you in a matter of, you know, a few miles even. So be very cautious of this. And um, in the end, it will pay enormous dividends. Like Drew said, you will see dramatic changes. One of the things that, that brings to mind something that actually I, I learned from uphill athlete years and years ago when I started using it was um, using, and this is getting into the weeds, but using minutes as a prescription versus distance. Um, and, and Scott, this is something I think you and I talked about a long time ago, because what I noticed with a lot of tactical guys is that if you prescribe a distance, say three miles, four miles, no matter what you include in terms of intensity prescriptions or, hey, I want you to run at this pace, what they'll see is I'm going to complete this distance as fast as I can. And I, I think you sort of touched on it if you're X, X many miles away from base or wherever it is that you're heading. Generally speaking, whether you realize it or not, you're going to speed up to finish that distance. Whereas if you prescribe a time-based session, like 30 minutes, 45 minutes of zone two training, at least from what I've seen, folks are much more inclined to complete that the right way because no matter how fast or slow you run, it's going to take you 30 minutes, 45 minutes. So you're better off sticking to the goal of the session, which is that base building piece, than just going as hard as you can, because inevitably you're going to slow down anyway within that, that time frame. You're absolutely right. I misspoke. I should have, I was, I was using miles because you know, I think in running terms and my runners talk about miles, but you're absolutely right. Um, I, but you can use the same metric in terms of pro progressing it, you know, in terms of 10 or 20 percent. Um, same. It's the same idea. But you, I believe you're right in terms of of trying to create this notion that, yeah, you're going to go run for 30 minutes at this effort level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people might run, you know, three and a half miles and some people might run two and a half miles in that 30 minutes. And it doesn't matter because they both got, this is the interesting part. They both got the same training stimulus. Mm -hmm. 
One of them is already perhaps a little better aerobically adapted and allowed them to run a longer distance in that 30 minutes, but they both got the same training stimulus. And that's what we're looking for is you know, what's the optimal training stimulus. Well, and I see this with coaches too, where if we go and not, I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole necessarily, but if we go off of a distance prescription, you end up having to do a lot of funky math. If you're dealing with a group of people, because you have to figure out, okay, you're going to go to this cone. You're going to go, this other person is going to go to that cone because I need them to all finish at kind of the same place. And it becomes this weird calculus problem. Whereas if you just have, it can be five people, it can be 500 people. You're all going to run for 30 minutes. You're all going to go at a pace that allows you to breathe through your nose. I mean, for lack of a better prescription, that's a pretty good way to handle group training for endurance. Yeah, it is. It gets them all back to the starting line at the same time. So if you're, if you're needing, if you're needing to op function as a group, then yes, it will get them. You know, some of them are going to have to turn around. You know, they're, they're all going to turn around at 15 minutes and head back. Um, and some of them are just going to be you know, turning around, you know, at lesser distance out there. But yes, that that does I think work pretty well. Having coached athletes where you know, yeah, you send them out to train and you know you're waiting with the van in the parking lot, you know, for half an hour because there's somebody straggling in. That's not very much fun. So I think yeah, group for for groups, this is a real really good way. And this is an area where you guys know a lot more about that than I do. I tend to work with individual athletes. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a couple of things I'm hoping to, to tease out as we go, and they'll, I think they'll hopefully help tie it to why we think some of this uphill athlete alpinism stuff ties really well to the tactical stuff. But I know like uphill found some significant success recently and not that recent, like over the last few years with best ranger competition competitors. And I'd, I'd just love to hear a little bit about that in terms of like why we think that population was drawn to this programming and what they were looking for and why you think they found so much success doing it? Um, well, I, I think that they were drawn to it and I had nothing, I had no influence in this. I, I didn't find out that it was being used. I did know it was being used in particular by some of the, especially the unit that was using some of our training methods or some of the guys who were getting into the selection for the unit um, were using some of the uphill athlete training methods. But it was only lately that I discovered that people training for the best ranger competition were also using these, these methods. Um, it makes complete sense to me because that's an event that lasts, what is it? I think roughly 60 to 65 hours, somewhere in that range of continuous movement. And, and obviously you have um, these tactical events scattered throughout it, but you're having to move between those tactical events, some of the, some of the time running, but much of the time rucking. And when you arrive at that tactical event, you need to be able to complete it you know, effectively because you're, you're scored on each individual event. And <clears throat> so when you get to the obstacle course or the firing range or whatever, you need to be able to perform at a very high level. Now the, the beauty and the, the importance of this aerobic base, and this is where the alpinism part comes in. And, and maybe I should make a little bit of a, a, a comparison, but let's keep with the Rangers for a minute. Um, by using energy that's produced by this aerobic metabolic pathway, you're not having to dip into that 
your relatively limited reserves of stored carbohydrates in the form of glycogen, which you need for that obstacle course that you're going to have to complete in the next, you know, two minutes. Um, that's a high intensity um, event that needs this carbohydrate fuel. But if you've been burning away that carbohydrate fuel in this glycogen, um, just to ruck between events, then when you get to the obstacle course, that fuel tank is empty or, or very much drained down. And so your performance on the obstacle course is likely to be much worse because you don't have access to some of those faster twitch muscle fibers that real, that rely on glycogen. Um, and so what we found, and this was something I found through alpinism years and years ago with my own climbing, but then I began to coach some high level alpinists. And so the definition of alpinism, for those that don't know, it's, it's basically like really dangerous, hard climbing on the hardest routes on the biggest mountains. Um, it's not hiking up to the top of, you know, Mount, Mc, Mount McKinley or Denali or Mount Everest, you know, with you know, following a, like a fixed rope and with Sherpas carrying your loads. That's not alpinism. Alpinism is going and finding the biggest, nastiest, hardest thing that can be climbed and tackling it. So that is often results in somebody having to be on a climb moving continuously for many, many hours, you know, at least, you know, six, seven, eight hours, and sometimes 30 to 50, 60 hours of continuous movement with some extremely high intensity sections and um, periods built into it. So very much like the ranger competition that's, and, and um, so the, the, and your body doesn't know, you know, your muscles don't know what they're doing. They just know they're being, they're contracting. So the, the training methodologies that we've developed for training these alpinists are perfectly applicable to this military tactical world because the muscle just is doing this. It's just contracting. But it, so these, this 65 hour uh, range, best ranger competition could, from a muscle standpoint, it wouldn't know the difference if it was, you know, on a big, the, the Eiger North face doesn't, doesn't care. Um, and so what we, dis what was discovered and brought to my attention by, in this particular case, the winner of the 2001, um, best ranger competition, Vince Pakowski, um, he came to me and said, Hey, you know, I, I won this competition that year. And I wanted to let you know that I used you know, the training methodologies that you prescribe in the book and training for the new alpinism and, you know, on the website. And he said, and the interesting part, you know, Vince is a really curious guy. And he's one of the things he did that I found very fascinating. I mean, I wasn't surprised that he could use those methodologies and win. He and his partner, I should say, not just him. Um, but what I found in really fascinating was at the end, he did an analysis of the, the finishing teams. As you know, there's, I can't remember how many like teams start, but not all that many teams, maybe 20 teams get to finish. They get paired out as they go along. And he did an analysis of all the finishing teams. And what he discovered was the teams that had the, um, the least degradation, excuse me, the teams that had the fastest running and rucking times between events had the least degradation in their shooting skills over the course of the event. So they got higher scores on the, on the uh, target range. And as a consequence, their overall score ended up being higher. 
And again, that wasn't surprising to me because again, that's like alpidism. I mean, you have to have enough endurance to get from one really hard spot on the mountain to another really hard spot on the mountain and then be able to perform at an extremely high level. So very similar to whether it's an obstacle course or the, um, or, or the, the shooting range. And when he, so he was in, I mean, I think he understood the, the, the implication of that is because these guys could, these, these winning teams, best performing teams could run and rock in that aerobic zone using that aerobic energy system predominantly, they were able to perform better when it came time to, you know, really do something that was super demanding. Um, and I think that was the takeaway. And then this year, you know, I, I think you guys know, he worked with a number of different teams um, and he was either, he was coaching some of the teams personally, and then he had, he had pr provided training plans to a few of the other teams that wanted to prepare. And it was based on this exact same methodology that he used. And this year, the teams used using that same methodology went first, second, third, fourth, uh, sixth and seventh. So out of the top, you know, that's six out of the top 10 teams that were using this same, this, um, type of aerobic based training methodology. So I think it's, you know, it's proven itself in conventional sports. I've used it now for years working with the athletes, some of these, um, military guys heading for the, you know, these tier one selections. Um, and now we're seeing it, you know, at the best ranger level, producing, you know, the best results. So I think we can say with some confidence that it actually does work. It's, uh, this is not theoretical anymore, you know. And yes, it's nice to understand the theory about these energy production pathways, but in the end, what you really want to know is, you know, am I going to be better at my job? Am I going to be faster? Um, am I going to perform better at, at, you know, in this case, you know, combat? Uh, type of situations. So this is obviously simulated kind of combat situation, but it nonetheless, it's it, it, the idea for that behind that best ranger competition is to test all of these qualities that they think are the most important qualities to have for the combat soldier. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk, because I know um, the base building piece and, and once an athlete has kind of gone through their paces, so to speak, with accumulating what, what you as the coach would consider enough aerobic volume, can you talk about how you start to introduce intensity the correct way, as opposed to just, Hey, I've done, you know, five, six weeks of running. Now it's time to go and hit it hard. Yeah. Well, obviously five or six weeks would be on the short side of the Right. Internet. Exactly. <laughs> one of the things I think that's important to keep in mind. So I mentioned this guy, Iliad Kipchoge, that can run a two hour marathon. You can, I have seen athletes improve their running pace at this aerobic threshold for 10 years consistently over the course every year, they get faster and faster and faster. So it obviously uh, an, an elite athlete like him, he's continued to improve that year after year for decades, probably now. Um, and so I think people should understand this is not something that you are going to maximize in one four month training cycle. You can keep building it forever. But when, but you, at some point you are going to need to introduce some high intensity training then that's because probably the event you're training for will involve some kind of intensity somewhere in it. And so you, to your point, Drew, yeah, maybe this guy's only got 
eight weeks before whatever this event that he needs to maybe it's you know maybe it's um you know, a selection process where he has to do the you know the, the army physical fitness test or something like that and so at some point he better start adding a little bit of intensity so that his perhaps his mile time can you know we can improve it a little bit the way i like to introduce intensity in terms of the running intensity let's say i'm trying to work with you know somebody who's headed for you know wants to improve their their three mile running time we do this a lot of this aerobic base training but at some point we start doing things like mile repeats i almost never go shorter than a mile um and we'll do mile repeats at, at a pace that i feel is appropriately hard for them i usually have them do a three mile time trial so i can see what they're able how fast or how hard they can currently how fast they can run three miles and then i will set their mile repeats based on that usually taking that time so let's say they ran an average of eight minute miles initially i would have them start at like you know running eight twenties three by three times eight twenties with a, like a five minute rest in between them but when i'm adding this intensity i do not reduce the aerobic base training and i think that is where this can become confusing for folks is they think, like you said, Drew, okay, I've done all that stupid aerobic base training stuff. Now I'm going to get into the real business here. But you have to remember that aerobic base training is the support, it's the metabolic support for this high intensity training. And if you stop doing it or you decrease the training load of that, you're going to be able to handle the high, you're going to be, you're going to do worse at the high intensity training, frankly. And so what I try to tell them is, we're going to add as much intensity as we can until you are so fatigued from it. We have to reduce your base training by more than about 10%. If we have to reduce the aerobic base volume by more than 10%, then you're not capable of handling more, any more intensity, frankly, at this point. And so, and this is running intensity I'm talking about. Now there's other ways to do intensity training. And one of the ways that, uh, I mean, obviously for many of these guys, it's going to be, you know, fast rucking. Um, and so that is, you know, that can factor in as well. Um, but I, I don't generally use a high volume of fast rucking because of the injury potential with it. It's so high. And, you know, we've, I've got guys who are you know, literally heading for these tier one selections and I, if they get injured, they're out, they're not even going to make it to the selection. So I have to be very careful with that, but I've, I've still found that, you know, they run well, they're going to do fine in the ruck. They obviously they have to carry a pack at some point in their training, but it's usually not, I don't have them running with a ruck except on very rare occasions. Mm -hmm. I will ask you, you started talking about adding an intensity the right way, which reminded me of something Drew keyed me into within the last couple of days that I was hoping to, to pull out here. But the, uh, the, the sandcastle metaphor of adding intensity mm -hmm. was a pretty cool one to me. So I was hoping you could explain that for the audience here. Yeah, so we can think of, um, let me try it. I didn't write that article on the website, but I think it's a very clever uh, analogy. So let me see if I can uh, recreate it here. But basically, you know, the sandcastle is a combination of, of the sand and some water. And, you know, with too much, basically the intensity being, and I think it's in this case, I got this right, the water, you add too much water and the sandcastle begins to fall apart. And the... The idea is there's got to be this careful mix. And if you think about the amount of water that's in a sandcastle and, you know, and compare that to the intensity that's in one of these training plans, it's not very much. You know, they, the amount of intensity 
that it takes to produce the best results is remarkably little. People are shocked when I tell them, you know, even for athletes that I've coached to the Olympics, to the podium at the Olympics in the sport of cross-country skiing, which is a super high intensity sport, they maybe, maybe in their total training volume for the year do 10% of that training in what we might call zone three and four, you know, hard, hard training, high intensity training, training that leaves them, you know, gasping with their hands on their knees at the end of the interval, 10%. And these are people that are doing races that, you know, at the longest may last, last you know, 30 to 40 minutes. So it's an incredibly high intensity event. And they don't need that much intensity. And when you get to, when you start talking about people that are doing multi-hour events, then the amount of intensity that's needed even drops lower. You know, and the, it's just, it's like that haiku. You, you, run, you run a lot and some of it fast. So it's, I think of this aerobic base as, you know, instead of a sandcastle, you can think of it as like a cake. And then the intensity is the frosting on the top. That's all it is. It's just a little bit of frosting on the top that makes it just a little bit sweeter or allows you to run just a little bit faster. Um, but it ain't the cake. I mean, with the frosting without the cake is not really going to be anything. I think a great, speaking of references online, and I, I pulled it up because I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but Scott, you'll immediately recognize this. The, um, the speed skater. Nils Vanderpool, I believe. Nils Vanderpool, yeah. So for, for people that are unaware, he won, and correct me on the event, he won gold on it. Was it a 10K? He won the 10,000 meters this 10,000 meter, and then decided to put his entire training program online for free, as well as his, essentially a free ebook of his training plan. And I think we immediately, and the Uphill Athlete community, we immediately shared it because if you look at some of the, like foundational base building sessions that this guy's doing it is insanity one the duration of it like multi-day six hour eight hour bike rides but at wattages that if you go and try to hit those on a bike to the point earlier about elliot kipchoge and his pace just asinine how like the capability that this guy has so talking about articles that you should look at online that is one that i would drive people towards if you want to just get sort of an idea of what it really means when we sit here and talk about you can do this for forever and see improvement for forever. I've plugged that. Uh, I've plugged that article on Mops and Mo's before, and I'll certainly plug it again because I think it's been a couple months since I shared it. But it's it's good insight, and he provides a lot of the same philosophy we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an extreme. He took it to an extreme, which is really interesting. Um, but the interesting part, I mean, he had been extremely successful as a speed skater already, and here he comes into the Olympics and decides to say, "I'm going to try," you know, this this extreme level of aerobic base training where he was training in 20 hour, 20 to 30 hours a week, I think mostly 30 hours a week, largely on a bike. Although during the process, he did do a 100 mile running race. Um, <laughs> and as you said, Drew, the, the wattages that this guy was able to produce on a, his average Watts on like a five or six hour ride were the kind of Watts you would see, you know, from a tour de France rider in a race. Yeah, I mean, the, the guy could take up have a career as a professional bicycle rider, bicycle racer. Now, um, I, I was impressed. I was very impressed by it. But when I read it, it was in the I read it in the Wall Street Journal. The article was written during the um, that the reporter reported during the Olympics, and I, I read it and I quickly clicked on this this thing that he had published. Was kind of his manifesto on training, 
And I read it and it was like, whoa, what a kindred spirit this guy is. I mean, he, he gets it, he understood it. And um, I've since seen some, there's a very interesting interview with him and his coach with Steven Seiler, who's quite a famous exercise physiologist. Um, they go in and go into some of the details, but yes, it's, I don't think most people would either have the time or the, the willingness to, to train 30 hours a week. Um, but you can see that, as you said, this, this stuff works. Yeah. And I think I, I use it almost as a marketing pitch for folks that have a tough time, like we said, digesting this idea that in, in the early days, it may be a lot slower than you think, but all you really need to do is look at examples like that, or you can look at the video. You know, there's been a couple of races that I've seen where they've taken a treadmill and they've put it at the pace of Elliot Kipchoge's sub two and people can get on it and try to last for as long as they can. And people will just get thrown off the back of this thing. Cause it's a sprint pace for normal folks, but yeah, when you think of running, you know, how few people can, you know, running a four and a half minute mile is a, <laughs> a big challenge. You know, that, that might be the kind of, that's a really good time for a high school track kid, you know, to run a four and a half minute mile. And this guy can do it for 26 miles. Um, yeah, and I've seen those videos and you can, if you Google Iliad Kipchoge test or something like that, you'll see these YouTube videos of people, you know, they last, you know, 15 seconds and boom, they're off the back of the treadmill. <laughs> And I think there's something to the point that Elliot Kipchoge could give very good sprinters a run for their money in a sprint race. Yeah. But sprinters could not give Elliot Kipchoge a run for his money in anything over a mile. Yeah. And, and so there's something to the, like the limitations of adaptation in this domain that's, that's worth people considering to know how high the ceiling is. Yeah, I mean, he would obviously not be competitive at a world level in, you know, short events, power events like a 200 or a 100 or even a 400. But once you get up into the 800 or mile distance, he would probably be reasonably competitive. I think his best mile time is, you know, right at four minutes. So while he's not, a, and he's not a miler, I mean, you know, the good milers now are 350. So that's, uh, you know, he's still a ways off that. Um, but it is, one of the interesting things about running too is, Guys like him, they probably started as milers. So they've developed this base of speed when they were relatively young because they, so they could learn to run at a four minute mile pace. And then as their aerobic capacity increased over time, they could move, they could take that speed and move it to longer and longer distances. And that's why they, you know, they, they, for a while they, you know, he ran five Ks and then he moved up to the 10,000 and then finally the marathon. Um, but you, you never see people moving the other way because they don't have the speed. You can't, you can't take somebody who let's say runs a three hour marathon and expect them to run a sub 30 minute, 10 kilometer. It just won't happen because they don't have enough speed in their legs. To, they don't have enough power to do it. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you could take, he would do better relative to Usain Bolt in a 100 meter sprint than Usain Bolt would do relative to him in a marathon. I think there's a nugget there when we think of tactical athletes specifically, because there is this element of strength, whether it's for the, you know, the PT test that you have to take or just the job itself. The, and we, we had a, a episode on this earlier about our tactical athletes, endurance or strength athletes more so. And I think the takeaway is that you can, with a lot less work than I think people realize, you can sort of hit that appropriate sport specific strength threshold, but there is so much room for improvement on the aerobic side that it's worth looking at your overall training plan and just kind of considering, am I doing 
so much work in the gym because it's where I'm comfortable and I'm avoiding the aerobic stuff because it's, it's sort of new and different, or have I kind of appropriately dosed this so that I'm accounting for the fact that kind of to the Elliot Kipchoge, Usain Bolt analogy, I can be strong enough to do the job, but the aerobic component is, is really bottomless and I can go, I get much more bang for my buck. If I spend a lot more time there, I guess is what I'm getting at. And it takes, and honestly, it takes more time. You know, the, you've got to go out for a two hour run and you got to do a two hour run. And, and so it, in those, and it takes many of those to really build this space. But I think you're right that in, what, in my experience, and it's, I have to say it's somewhat limited, but most of the guys that come to me that are training for these, these um, big time selections, they are, they have such a good strength training background they're more than adequate strength probably to, to do these, to, to get in, you know, especially because the events of this, but some of these tier one selections is the only time you ever do a pull-ups on day one, that's it. It's over. Test is over. Done. Now you move on to all this stuff where you got to carry a pack and run around in the woods for, you know, eight or 10 hours a day. So um, they have adequate strength. And it turns out, as you said, Drew, it once you have that level of strength, it doesn't take that much to maintain it. You do not need to do, three set gym sessions a week to keep that strength. Um, you know, these guys I work with typically have done one gym strength session a week is all. And they, they maintain it. And I've had a couple of them actually say, I've never been this strong. I had a guy training for one of these tier one selections last year who said, I have never been this strong in my life. And I'm, he was doing one gym strength workout. It was a max strength protocol. And he said, I've spent my whole military career, you know, four or five days in the gym and we're doing all this strength training. And he said, I'm stronger now than I've ever been. So I think that there is, as you guys know, I mean, strength training is very exhausting to the nervous system. This stuff we're talking about is more exhausting to the metabolism and the metabolism recovers much faster than the nervous system. You know, you think about, you can't go into the, the, the uh, gym and do, you know, deadlifts to failure four or five days a week. You're, 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 and it's not because of the muscles. It's because your central nervous system loses the drive to recruit those muscles. And so it's easy to overdo strength training. I think, and I believe that happens frequently. Mm -hmm. I think a piece of it too, there's, there's obviously a ton of talk about risk reduction and like injury risk reduction in the military. And it's easy to look at the numbers and see how many injuries come from running in the military. And that's why I want to circle back a little bit to some points made earlier about, especially in this culture, people are, don't want to go as slow as you guys are suggesting they need to go for the base building stuff. It's really uncomfortable to check the ego and actually back off that much. And then there's not, I think people need to be more conservative with the progression too. People want, I, I get questions all the time about like, what should I do? to crush my PT test, it's in 10 days. Like, well, you needed, you needed to ask what to do a long time ago. Cause the, like there, there's a strategy we can use for the 10 day, but it's a whole different conversation to, to build the base. And you have to be much more conservative about how fast you progress and how much time you put into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, running injuries are rampant, you know, in the civilian population too. But I think especially in yours, because, you know, there's the ego component and people don't want to be seen running slowly. I have a story in the, one of the, the, I think it was the first book I wrote about my, I trained this Olympic cross-country skier who, believe it or not, was aerobically deficient. And I had to have him slow down. And he's a pretty well-known guy in the ski community that he lived in. And, and 
I was having him having, he had to slow down to like an eight and a half minute mile to stay in his aerobic zone. And he told me, I have to have a paper bag over my head when I go out running because people, they know, they know him. He's kind of a famous guy where he lives and here he's seen jogging along what he would consider kind of a granny pace. And he said, it's just so embarrassing to, to have to do this. So I, I get it. I, I I've seen it a lot. And I think that, but if you want to avoid injury, then you're going to have to check that ego for sure. It's uh it's, it's, like, it's probably your worst enemy in, in endurance sports is ego. It's tough. During, during COVID, I used to do a lot of these in a, a national park or national forest that was real close to my apartment where I lived at the time. And I would go out with the best intentions of running like zone two the whole time. And I would be very, very good at it other than the part where the boat dock was at the park where all the people were. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, once people could see me Without thinking about it, I'd lose track of what the intent was and I'd speed up a little bit too much and I'd have to check myself once I got away from the people and it would happen all the yeah. time. I'm, I'm probably, you know, I'm the biggest uh, proselytizer for this kind of information and, and I do the same thing. I'm out on a trail running and I see somebody and I will, without any intention, speed up. It happens, yeah. That's why Scott has to live in a house tucked away in the woods, very far away from civilization. If you try to find Scott's house, it's in the middle of nowhere, because if he runs near anybody, he breaks out his own too. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's the tough part though. Yeah, exactly. So people have to understand, you know, that the, the purpose of this training session is this, and your friends have to understand it. You know, the guys you're training with, they go, Hey, nope, that pace is too fast for me. I'm going to slow down and run at a, a, this other pace. And that's tough to do if you're in a culture. I mean, I, I discovered that I, I worked with the seals for uh, <laughs> Drew can attest to this um, very unsuccessfully for quite some time. That community was not interested in hearing this message. Um, that, you know, there just was no, but I got no buy-in. I mean, I did get buy-in from several athletes and a couple of them, you know, were, went through the dev group selection and made it. So it works, but the general community at large, no, there's no way they were going to go out and run slow. So yeah, I understand the reason there's a huge resistance in your community to this. I, I understand why. And, and I think this is something that another, another lesson we could learn from conventional endurance sports is it's very hard to understand why running slower is going to make you run faster in the long run or, or skiing slower, or, you know, swimming slower, or riding your bike slower, whatever. Um, because people look at the event, the race in this case, in these conventional endurance sports, they look at the race and they go, wait a minute, I'm not running at that, that slow pace. I'm running as fast as I can for as long as I can in this, whatever the race is. And as a, and then what they see is my limit in this race is right at what we, what I would call their endurance limit. They're, they're running at their endurance limit and what's a 5k they're running faster than if they're running a 10k, but they're running at their endurance limit. So they think, Oh, my performance sucks at this endurance limit. I need to do more training at that endurance limit. And that's that mentality. That's I think somewhat it's, it's, it's intuitive. That's the way you would, you'd think, Hey, if I'm bad at something, I need to do more of it. And that makes complete sense. But unfortunately, the physiology is pretty counterintuitive that no, no, what's limiting you is not that, that endurance limit. You're being limited because you don't have enough aerobic capacity to run faster for longer. And, and so I think there's, that's that kind of an overemphasis on specificity. 
And he, you can think of, and again, using more conventional or traditional athletes, you know, if this held true, that we should all train at our race pace, at our endurance limit all the time, then Iliad Kipchoge would go run a marathon every day as hard as he could. I mean, he would want to do an event every day or as often as possible that looked just like the event he was training for. And yet he rarely trains at that four and a half minute of mile pace, rarely. I mean, probably in the range of 5% of his training is done at that intensity. And I think the same holds true in your world is that people look at the events they're training for, which may be a PT test or, or they look at the job requirements of, you know, dev group or the unit and they go, wow, look at these guys are big and strong and break down doors and they have to be able to do, have all this strength and speed. And they don't understand that what's underlying that is still this aerobic base. And it, it has this counterintuitive um, rationale that I've struggled to try to explain to people is that no, you actually need to slow down to go faster. And that what's difficult for people that come from a strength and strength background is they go, wait a minute, if I, were, if I wanted to get a better deadlift, I'm not going to go in the gym and lift lighter weights for more reps. I'm going to have to go in the gym and lift heavy weight for fewer reps. And, but again, strength training is a different, you're training a different system than you're training when you're training for endurance. And so you have to kind of leave that whole strength training mindset behind you. It's interesting because I read, I don't remember who said it, but it was in the business or economic world. And, and the catchphrase was macro patience, micro speed. And this is almost the exact opposite of that when we think of the endurance building, where it's micro patience in terms of your daily sessions being, you know, being methodical, being slow for macro speed in the long term, where if you do the work over time, the speed or whatever the event is that you're training for sort of delivers itself because you've, you've laid the foundation. Yeah. Consistency is, is so crucial to, I think any training, but especially endurance training. And that's because you need this stimulus fairly frequently. The, the aerobic metabolic pathway that we've been kind of referencing this whole time, it, the biggest stimulus to improvement for it is the volume of training. That's why and it's, it's not about intensity. It's about how, how many hours you spend a week running. That's what's going to cause this stimulus. Um, you know, it's analogous. Like maybe that is analogous to, okay, how many tons did you lift this week? That would be another way to, to, to think of it. A similar, similar sort of, sort of thing. You know, the, the, the more tonnage you're lifting in a week, the more likely you're going to see strength gains. So or the more volume you are running, the more likely you are to see gains in this uh, aerobic uh, area as well. Mm -hmm. Well, to kind of, cause we, we've, we've gone on a journey now with the base building stuff for people who want to learn more about this specific to uphill athletes, specific to, to you and kind of your work, where's it, where's the best place for people to find you? Well, the, the easiest way is to go to our website, which is uphillathlete.com. And, and, you know, I have to confirm that we don't have a high profile, maybe intentionally, or maybe by virtue of the fact that um, we don't have much, not enough people are interested in the tactical world and what we're doing. Um, it's beginning to get bigger, you know, after, especially after this best ranger competition uh, results. But we're in the process of putting together a tactical section on the website to, to address these special needs, because we realize 
or I certainly realize that this is an underserved community that doesn't know much about this. It doesn't have the ac very much access to this kind of information. And I'm really passionate about it, as you can probably tell. And I want to try to get this information out there in language that the tactical athletes, military athletes will understand. When you go to our website, it's going to be mostly concerning, you know, climbing, you know, alpinism, mountaineering, uh, ski mountaineering, running in the mountains, that sort of thing. And again, the reason that this has been, if you can put aside the, the, the fact that, okay, well, I'm not a climber or I'm not a runner. Um, again, the muscles don't know the difference between that and rucking. You know, they just, they can't tell. So if you can understand that, there's a ton of information on this website about the, the fundamental principles and the, then the physiology of all this stuff. And then this tactical section that we're building in the process of building will be more in, like I said, the language of the tactical athlete. And I hope to, hope we have that, you know, complete in the next month, couple of months, um, so that there's some resource there that people can relate to. Um, then We'll at the same time be rolling out some training plans for folks that to use for these various selections. Um, and of course, there's always coaching that's available. And, you know, you know, Drew is one of our coaches and we have some other um, military coaches. Uh, we have one former SEAL and um, this guy, Vince Pakowski, that won the best Rangers coaching for us. So we have people that can speak your language, understand the demands of your job, if you would choose to go with coaching. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on. And thanks for, thanks for talking through this. I appreciate it. You guys are, are very welcome. And again, anything I can do in this, in this uh, sphere of, of, you know, the world you guys live in, I'm happy to help try to contribute with, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I butted my head against the wall pretty hard out in Virginia beach a couple few times. And the, and so I'm, I'm, our, our reach has become more word of mouth. That's how people are finding us is, you know, athletes are successful in these various uh, selection processes. And they say, oh, I use this book and I trained this way and it helped me. So that's kind of how we're growing this. We don't, you know, we're not really, you know, again, we don't have much presence in that world. Um, mm. And maybe that's a good thing. We're kind of low key about it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody run slow. But thanks so much for, um, for inviting me to come on. It's a real honor to talk to you guys about this stuff. Yeah, no, thank you.